Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing guest, uh, obviously a guest from Spain. So uh, this is this is one that uh, that it really hits home for me. Definitely a founder that you know really has been able to understand the moves from corporate to startup, the moves you know from going from one geographic location to another one and starting from the bottom up. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, in terms of really building financing and scaling a company. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sergio Furio. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you for the invite. And uh, I'm looking forward to have like a great time. So born obviously there in Spain, you know, originally in, in Valencia, but then, you know, you eventually moved to Barcelona. So how was the upbringing and life in, in Spain? Yeah, so I was originally from a small village in Valencia. Uh, Sagunto is like 20,000 population. I um, studied there my, uh, you know, my early years. When I was 14, my family decided to move to Barcelona. To me, it looked like a, a fantastic jump from the village to a huge city. So I, I spent my high school there in uh, in in Barcelona. I did my uh, business education in Barcelona, and uh, you know, graduated in 2000. Uh, looking forward to it in the world, as you can imagine. And, and looking forward to join the corporate world. So then tell us about the corporate world, because I'm sure that that really gave you a little bit of a, of a perspective as to how to approach problems, specifically during the consulting years, but but starting with banking. So why, why banking? So actually, Alejandro, during my whole university period, uh, I, I was going to be like a marketer. Uh, I was totally into marketing. I had worked, like done my internships in big, like the, the, the pens company, uh, then in Danone, doing yogurt advertising and so on. And I had like an offer to go there. And in May two, 2000, I started thinking, oh my God, there's there are no numbers here. This is more about, you know, communicating ideas. And I was totally into numbers, very analytical type of thing. And I, I did like a a radical move in the last couple of months of my uh, of my university, and uh, decided to apply for banking, and uh, joined Deutsche Bank in the uh, you know in the Spain's uh, investment banking team covering a large corporates. Spent five years there, and uh, those were like crazy years in 
in investment banking in uh, in Europe, you, you you actually the the, the spreads were high. Uh, you had like a lot of derivatives, debt capital market transactions, you know, high profile deals. It was like a, it was fun. By 2000, and that was like the the, the classical environment of uh, living uh, in a bank, like surfing the waves. In, in by 2005. I was sort of like realizing that banking was like a bit of like too specialist. The the, the more that you were progressing up the ladder, uh, the more that you were uh, completely narrowed in your potential uh, future growth. You were going to be like either focused in capital markets, in equities, in derivatives. You know that existential crisis came, and I said I, I want to do something more, you know, broader. Uh, the guys from BCG came to me and said, Why don't you join us? We are looking to set up a team. A, um, to uh, to be like a, you know the best consulting firm in banking in, in down here in Spain. So I joined it in two thousand in two thousand and five. It's that type of movement that doesn't really happen a lot. And um, spent like three years, three four years there in Spain, uh, working in almost every single uh, large banking institution in Spain. But those were like a glory uh, glory years before the crisis. Like a lot of things, a lot of learnings, a lot of growth doing strategic plans, uh, uh, operational excellence, technology, uh, everything related. And why do you think that, you know, especially on consulting, uh, consultants, you know, make fantastic entrepreneurs? I mean, why do you think that's the case? So the, in consulting, you typically have like this challenge of the white piece of paper in which uh, a, uh, a customer comes to you a, and typically it's like a large corporation that has like a problem they are struggling with. It's not day-to-day business. They come to you and ask you a question and they don't have like a framework for solving that. So you just uh, go to your laptop and start like a, Googling about the problem. <laughs> That's always what you do first. There's not like a, a one of those things of I know everything. So you always Google the problem. And uh, and then you take like a piece of paper and start like uh, drawing some maps and, and thinking about how you would solve that problem. And if you think about it, that's a, that's a bit of the life of an entrepreneur. It, one day you're walking on the street or someone tells you about a, a specific thing or opportunity or problem, and then you start like thinking about it. What would you do to actually solve it? Uh, so so the, 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 the framing of problem, diagnostic problem ideas, uh, solutions, that, that works well with the, uh, with the consulting world. Um, there are like a, another type of projects in, uh, in consulting which are more execution-oriented, more a PMO type, right? So managing a large project and to a certain extent you're, you're trying to do that also in a in a startup when you hit the scale up phase and you really want to have like a multiple work streams running in parallel from marketing sales operations technology blah 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 and so on yeah so i think that's uh that, that, that could be like some commonalities obviously there are like a uh, fantastic differences as well right so in consulting you have like a, a host of uh, of people extremely talented international peers that can help you in solving the problem. You have like an amazing brand, great facilities. Uh, and in, when you set up your startup, you don't have like any of the above. You need to go and buy your buy your coffee for your team. You need to be like the taxi driver for the team. Uh, you need to cheer the, 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 the team. Uh, you're like a cheerleader and you need to forget most of the things that you learn in that previous experience, to be very uh, very honest as well. Absolutely. Uh, obviously, moving to New York was a pivotal moment for you. I mean, not only because you met your now wife, but then also because, you know, perhaps it shaped a little bit 
your mindset and, and the direction of where you wanted to go. So, so how was that experience of moving to the concrete jungle? So, so I mean, Alejandro, you know that New York is the place that you always want to go. Uh, you want to have like a professional experience in the city. Uh, at least, you know, my generation, it, it was like the, the, uh, the destiny, you know, um, where everything from Wall Street to, you know, the empires are built there. So it's, um, I, I felt that as, you know, this is the last thing that I want to, that I want to do. And, uh, and then after being like three, four years there, I, I was like advising some of the largest banks in the country and uh, doing like a huge technology transformation for a while. Uh, and then two, three years down the road uh, of that phase in New York, I started like realizing that, well, if, if this is like the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the last thing or like the, the, uh, the top of the building, I think that we are screwed up. <laughs> there needs to be like a better way. Uh, and, and the feeling that I was having while advising those firms and, and actually being part of, of, those, uh, of those projects was that there needs to be like a better way of, of doing it. Technology is reshaping the world and banking is not going to be out of, of, of that change and, and of that movement. And I remember like back in those days, right? So sharing some ideas about, you know, how technology was going to completely reshape the banking industry. And uh, there were like a lot of hesitation of accepting that, you know, it's banks are big. They're always going to be there. Who's going to work with a small company? Yeah. Who's going to rely just on technology without relationship? Uh, and that was 2012. It looked like it was like a 100 years ago, uh, but it's less than 10 years ago. And uh, it, it was impossible. If you were like talking to every single executive in a bank, they would tell you, you know, th th this is this is it. It's the way of of doing that. So I think it was like uh, New York provided me with the realization that even the you know the, the top banks in the world, they, they actually were not moving fast enough. They were not reacting fast enough. I moved to New York in 2008. The iPhone was one year old. Four years later, the entire world was iPhone. The entire world was in a mobile phone, and the banks had not moved fast enough to adapt and to adjust to that new reality. And I think that's what actually provided me with the. Uh, with the energy, if you want, of let's give it a try. I, I was like in, I was in 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 2012. I was a um, what was that? That was 33, 34. So I, I interpreted it as it's either now or never. If I just stay here, it's I'm always going to be like an executive. And in reality, it's not that that simple, right? So you can become an entrepreneur whenever you want, even if you're like 70, you can be like an amazing entrepreneur. And uh, the, the other thing that happened in New York, as, as you were mentioning, is like I first I met like a, a, a lot of friends, including you. Um, but but then second, I in, in 2011 I met my now wife, uh, and uh, and she, she she used to work in consulting as well, also in BCG, uh, you know, like a small world type of thing. She came up with the uh, you know with like a simple sentence of uh, you know in Brazil people they just pay 100% APR for a personal loan. And, you know, boom, that was it. I say, okay, don't, don't tell me more. Uh, I, I guess that there needs to be like some opportunities there. And that was like the genesis of, uh, of Creators. That's amazing. I mean, it's obviously quite a move, no? Because uh, you are now in New York City. I mean, it's like you're on top of the world. I mean, people in Spain, where we're from, they look at New York and in the movies, and it's like the place to be. But all of a sudden, you know, your wife puts Brazil on the map you start thinking about this. So what was that incubation process of you looking into this, analyzing the opportunity, all the way to the moment that you say, let's do it, and you pull the trigger? 
So I was, uh, Alejandro, I was a consultant at that point and uh, with, with all the goods and the bads. And uh, so the first thing was uh, getting into the Central Bank of Brazil website and uh, looking if uh, hopefully they had like some data about the market just to sort of like understand it from uh, bottom up of the market. And, and luckily, you know, I mean, Portuguese is relatively similar to Spanish. Yeah, so you need like the, to, to be like a master in Portuguese to understand what was going on there. And they have like a plenty of excels and analysis. Uh, it's an amazing central bank, by the way. Yeah, so I sort of like over like a period of like probably like three weeks or so, I um, got to know the Brazilian banking system and uh, started like reading uh, journals about what people thought about that problem of high APRs and uh, you know very expensive financial services. And most of the time, what the banks were saying was that, you know, the prices are high because delinquency is high, funding cost is high, and just because Brazil is just like that, right? Essentially, that was like the very low quality explanations. Yeah, so sort of like I formulated a, a, a radically different thesis, which was based on uh, inefficiency in the distribution network. Yeah, and I was like, now it's very obvious, but I remember my first trip to Brazil after taking the decision, by the way, I took the decision when I was still in New York, on my first trip to Brazil, uh, sharing those ideas with some of the executives in, in the banking sector. And, and they, they were sort of like looking at me up and down. I said, where the hell these guys coming? Uh, don't you see that the Brazilian banking industry is the most profitable in the world? And it's, it's true. Uh, it's just that it's so profitable, not because they are efficient, but just because the prices are, are far too high and the elasticity uh, is relatively is relatively low for the consumer. So with uh, with that in mind, I say okay. So there, this is like a very clear problem, and technology is going to completely reshape this. So the, this the, and that was like the the the, the first part of uh, of uh, the, the the genesis of of it. Now the second part was just because there's like a problem and and technology is going to change something. That doesn't mean that you're ready to become like an entrepreneur and they. Mm, prepare your luggage and then just leave the country. So I had like a, one of my best friends uh, is uh, Pau Sabria, uh, which is the co-founder of Olapic. Uh, I had given him like the first check back in 2009, I think it was. A, um, and uh, we we were like all, you know, every single week we were together. And then one week I remember, I think it was like Thanksgiving. Uh, we went to uh, his family's house a, uh, like a uh, hundred miles from New York. And I said, Pau, I, I want to become an entrepreneur. I'm going to do something in financial services. W what's the one-on-one of entrepreneurship? And we spent like a Thanksgiving uh, weekend just uh, a theorizing on that, talking about like the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it was like refreshing to see that, you know, entrepreneurship is like a lot of, about like being scrappy and and uh, finding your way through a jungle, another jungle, obviously different like uh, Wall Street. But uh, you just need to be humble and uh, and, and prepare for the uh, uh, for the roller coaster. Um, so together with Pau, I just uh, scratched like a very simple business plan. Pitched like uh, I remember Fabrice Grinda uh, from uh, FJ Labs. Uh, that he was ex co-founder of OLX. Uh, uh, Pau introduced me to him. I went there. I pitched him on the idea, still in New York. Um, and and then after 30 minutes or so, he says, no, yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally like this. 
That's what I uh, funded Enrique Linares to do a capitalist in Sao Paulo. So essentially, the guy was telling me, you know, to my face, uh, yeah, it, I, I agree with you. That's what I already funded, like another company. I said, well, it looks like entrepreneurship is going to be like a very interesting thing. That's amazing. And and I'm sure that, you know, for you too, I mean, when when you're coming out of Spain, where the only thing, the only options that you have now, obviously things have changed, but, you know, we're talking about 2012 or so, where, you know, the still the the environment in Spain hasn't hadn't really changed much around innovation and startups. I mean, now everyone wants to do a startup, but back then, you know, it was like you would finish a university and you would either go into consulting, banking, or become a lawyer. So I guess in this case, you know, specifically for you, uh, would you say that from a personal perspective, that was a little bit tough to perhaps have to tell the family and friends that that you were giving up on basically being in these amazing corporations, also being in New York City, and now here you are wanting to start from scratch, going to a different country. I mean, they probably thought you were completely nuts. So how, how did you deal with that personally? Uh, yeah, it's uh, with a lot of fear. <laughs> a lot of fear. <laughs> you know, you have to like uh, study hard, working like crazy, long hours in uh, in banking, long hours in consulting, uh, and then you end up like uh, creating a taste uh, about like uh, you know nice restaurants and uh, nice suits, nice ties, nice shoes. Uh, and and then suddenly you know you say, okay, I'm gonna do it. Am I really gonna be doing this? I remember like the first conversation with my parents and saying, hey, I'm going to be doing this. And so you're going to do what? Uh, so entrepreneurship has never been in my family a thing. I mean, maybe like a three generations ago, just because they had like a store or something. And, and yeah, it was like a lot of surprise for my family. Uh, sort of like, are, are, are you really sure? And uh, and regarding my friends, uh, definitely they, they thought that I was going nuts. Uh, regarding my co-workers, that, that was tough, right? Because the you know you're, you're living in a company that you're making like some decent money. And uh, I was going to boot, bootstrap the, uh, the, the startup. So you, you're, you're embracing yourself for at least like a year of not having a salary and to having to pay salary for others. So it, I was taking my last year bonus. And I remember in those early days, the, the, the thing that I was like tormenting me every single day was fear. It was like, what if I just don't make it? Uh, these guys are just going to laugh at me. And uh, call it like uh, your, you know, your secret demons that are always like attacking you and uh, your insecureness, right? That come back to you because you're making like a dramatic change in uh, in your life and uh, and risking like a bunch of things where you had like a, a safety net where you are were like in in your comfort zone, and uh, so uh, very tricky early days. Um, I remember that you know when when we officially moved to to Sao Paulo, uh, got an apartment. I took my monitor uh, that I had bought in New York because the you know computers and monitors were three times cheaper in New York than in Brazil uh, because of the import taxes. So I brought like all the things there. I fabricated myself a logo uh, of the company. At, at that point, it was called Bank Facil. The, the name Kratos uh, didn't come until like 20, uh, 2016, 2017. So fabricated the logo, put it on my uh, on my monitor. And then my wife arrives and say, oh, my God, what the hell are you doing? So like that, that was my company, right? So it's me, <laughs> a laptop. And um, and in those early days, right, so I, I sort of like said, okay, so I have, uh, it was like $150,000, my, my last bonus at the at the, at the the consulting company. And uh, I, I said, okay, so I, I have 
a 12 months of runway with this. I'm going to be paying for these operations. So I will, I had like my Excel and I'm putting like how many people I was going to hire, what I had to do and, you know, very romantic view of that, but a lot of fear. And then when I was talking to my friends, yeah, I was sort of like, uh, oh my God, I really need to make this happen. And, you know, it's interesting because you're mentioning here the word fear and, you know, many of the entrepreneurs that are probably listening right now are also are hearing those voices, you know, where that the what if, the, the you know, what's going to happen with this, with that. So how did you, how have you learned perhaps, you know, as an entrepreneur to be a little bit more at ease with those voices and with fear? When you're looking from the outside to the community, yeah, the, the community of, you know, startups, venture capitalists, journalists, right, that cover those things. You look at that like as if it's like a, a, a clan very closed. Um, you know how things operate inside. Everything looks glamorous. Everything lo looks like, okay, these guys actually, they, they, they know what, they, what they're doing. They really know how to, uh, how to speak, how to storytell. Uh, and you feel that that's not part of the world and that you really need to learn like a lot. And, uh, and, and definitely I felt like that for like a, probably like a year. Uh, and then slowly, yeah, I started like realizing that they were just like normal people that b besides those, uh, yeah, those new paper, newspapers covering news about like the craziest uh, startup that just came up and that it was like an overnight success, overnight success. Uh, you really realize that the story behind that founder is nothing close to that. There's like a lot of suffering, a lot of yeah. uh, insecureness, and uh, and that just that you know, like uh, we try to do our best every single day. And the important thing is that you work hard. And and uh, if, if if you go back home, you try to sleep, you cannot make it. Then you wake up like at 2 a.m. in the morning, go back to the laptop, start like working again. When you start like talking to other founders, you you start like realizing that everyone feels the same. Everyone does the same things. Second time founders, that's like a different story. Uh, investors already know you. You are much more secure. Uh, you already know how the industry works. But you know, there's no like a, a really like a bad thing in in uh, in being frustrated. And it's not like a the end of the world if you don't make it with your startup. The important thing is that you are trying, and everyone is looking at you. If you fail in the first one. Yeah, but you have done like an amazing job in the first in, in the first one, even though you, you, you didn't make it, the investor is going to be there for you and they're going to be helping you in creating the next venture. And I think that gave me like a comfort. That doesn't mean that it's easy, right? <laughs> but at least uh, it started like pivoting from the fear uh, to something more about like, uh, you know, encouragement on the future. Absolutely. Uh, and obviously in this case, you know, uh, for you, the landing there in, in Brazil, starting to bootstrapping the operation. I mean, bootstrapping is, is very difficult. I mean, every, any move in the wrong direction could mean death. But, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what, what were those early days like? What would you say was probably the, the toughest part about bootstrapping the company? Um, so I, I, I guess it's, uh, <laughs> and it looked like very depressing things, but uh, I think I, I talked about fear before. Now I'm going to talk about loneliness. <laughs> yeah, because I was like a solo founder. And, uh, you know, like uh, building the team, uh, in reality, was like um, quite straightforward. I think that I was like a, a foreigner coming to Brazil. And in reality, Brazil embraces people from the outside. Uh, they, they, they think that they actually know more than what they do. And uh, attracting talent, yeah, it's easier probably even for foreigners. Yeah, but uh, 
uh, I, I was like bringing in like a team of developers and a couple of journalists to help me with the content at that point because they were like a component on financial education. I really didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, but I remember from my conversations with my friend Pau that uh, he was telling me, hey, if someone else in the world has done that type of thing that you're trying to do, just call them, talk to them, and hear from them what they did well and what they would change. And, and I was saying, but are you sure that they will actually talk to me? And just, just try. And, and the reality is that I met like, uh, you know, a lot of people that were doing like uh, very similar things and everyone was there to help. Even people like uh, that were like listed companies at that point. I remember that I was using at that point as a benchmark Bankrate, which is a company that was later acquired by Red Ventures. And at that point, it was like a couple billion dollar valuation a uh, listed company. And uh, I managed to get like an intro to the CEO and I like uh, went to New York, sat with the CEO and tried to understand uh, what they were doing and what were the, the things that they were trying to do. And, and actually they, they, they wanted to come to Brazil and I said, I don't know if this is good or this is bad. Yeah, but then you realize that they had like so many problems um, that you're better off by explaining what you're trying to do, getting the feedback from them and learning from them. So it, it was a, a lot about unknown and about it trying to do things, try multiple things. I think that one of the uh, one of the key learnings that I got from that phase is if you select a very narrow market, then you better be you, you better be right. Uh, if uh, in our case we selected something that was huge, right, a very inefficient uh, lending market in Brazil with huge spreads, a massive industry, massive opportunity, we did so many things wrong, but because the market was so uh, so big. You were just like moving from one place to the other, try one thing here, if this doesn't work, then try this other one. Uh, and uh, the, the important thing is that you realize very quickly uh, what is working and what is not. Don't be too, too stubborn uh, with one single idea, but at the same time, trying to be resilient to pivot away from that idea and moving to something else, even if you are like uh, staying with uh, the target market that, we, that you are having. Now, I was speaking in those in those days with uh, you know the venture capitalists in Brazil. They, they were few in 2012, but that, that was obviously one problem. The second problem was that there were like already four or five guys trying to do the same that I was trying to do. <laughs> I said, "Whoa, this, this, this is not going to be. This is not looking good." And, and in those days, everyone is telling me like a no. You know, 18 months later, uh, was the the, the the seed round that we did. Uh, it was just like a $1.5 million. I think it was like a small seed round at that point. And it was just like a, 18 months after launching the company. Everyone was telling me no. And that was like a very difficult round. I had to put like a bunch of executives from financial services, a micro VC funds with small tickets. It, it, actually, it was like the toughest round that I did. Uh, ever in the in, in the in the company, in uh, you know three months before that, I I I was terrified because I thought that I was not going to make it with that round, and uh, I sold my apartment in New York. I went back and I said I'm going to cash out, I'm going to put that money in my account, uh, just because I don't want to yeah, I don't want to say stop. I, I I just want to continue. I was like believing in the in in the company, but obviously like very concerned that uh, if the revenues were not going up. Maybe nobody was going to give me money. So in this case, uh, Sergio, what would you say was the turning point for the company where you were like, okay, I think we're into something here? So in uh, after that seed round, um, we sort of like approached things very pragmatically of what do I need to actually make it to the Series A? 
And, uh, and that was like a combination of probably like a couple of things. Is one is obviously traction always helps, especially in Latin America in those days. Yeah, in the U.S. you were looking at companies with no revenues but doing like a you know billion dollar evaluation type of thing. Um, but in, in Latin America that was not the the case. Yeah, that was like a, you had to have like a solid business, even if you were obviously not making money. But at least you had to have like some good unit economics. So number one was like a, a traction unit economics. The, the financial side of it. So let's make sure that in 2014 we triple in revenues versus what we had in 2013. And then the second one was uh, storytelling. It's uh, you know, at that point I had already realized, and some of the mentors or informal mentors that I had at that point were were telling me, do storytelling. Just focus on how to communicate what you want to do. And um, I got into the Endeavor community at that point in 2014. That also supported me like a lot in really meeting new people, getting like other ideas from others. I probably like I spoke to more than 200 people in 2014. And by the end of the year, I realized that, you know, the the, the ideas that we had since the beginning, they, they were right. Uh, but the industry was moving slower, uh, specifically because the consumer in Latin America, um, the, adoption, uh, the adoption pace of the smartphone was significantly slower than in Europe or the US. But it was happening. Right? And this idea of using that we have at Kratos, which today, which is using assets to collateralize a lending product, call it a house or a car or the salary of the individual, using those as, as guarantees, it was something very unique. And uh, no one had thought about that as a business that could scale. There were like some tests, but no one was actually like uh, scaling that. And uh, and I thought that I had like the, uh, the the background on my side as a founder plus a team that was uh, really doing like an amazing job, uh, and I had like the plan in, in place, right? So even though the company was not something very robust at that point, the storytelling changed everything, and the results, the execution was uh, good enough. So I, I went to the market, and uh, and in that case, the reception was amazing. Yeah, uh, so it took us like uh, probably like five, six months to raise the Series A. Um, and uh, we, 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 we took that money in 2015 and we thought, okay, so that is it. Now, now is the moment. And, uh, and Alejandro, the, the problem is that when you think, okay, this is the moment, it, then is when something hits you. And uh, the, the, what happened at that point in 2015 was I had like that money in the account and we said, okay, so, you know, the 101 of uh, after Series A, build a product fast, grow fast, you need to make it to the Series B. Series B, you need to have like more traction, you need to have like a solid product. So we started to deploy capital in fire, in, in, in hiring uh, developers. And uh, I remember the cohort of developers that we hired in Q4 2015. Remember that that was like, at that point, it was like a 40, 50 employees company. There were like 15 developers that we hired in Q4 2015. Three quarters later, there was no one of them. We were like uh, running out of ideas. We didn't have like the proper communication with the team. We didn't have like a clear culture the way that we were uh, operating. It was like, a, you know, when you forget about everything that you have learned in your previous corporate experience because you have to, you have to learn to be more scrappy. And then you suddenly have like a team of 50, 60 when those management skills need to go back to you. And I just didn't make it. Um, I, I, you know, I, uh, I honestly was like, too focused on 
the traction, the product, on doing things, talking to investors, and I, I forgot about uh, building that culture that you want to have, and and uh, and having like a management, uh, a, a, an operational management being involved there. Um, so I, I thought that that was going to be like the end of the company, actually. Like uh, that was just like a year after the Series A in in 2016, and uh, and that point was actually the tipping point. Um, we took the business that was like a marketplace before 2016, and then decided that we it was time to migrate it into a full-fledged lender end-to-end, -end, in which we were controlling the customer acquisition, uh, we were controlling the production of the loan, and then the funding of the loan as well, uh, connecting with the capital markets. And uh, the first transaction uh, in that model happened in April uh, 2016, just uh, 15 days before we actually got a term sheet to do like an extension of the Series A because we didn't have like enough time. Um, so we successfully made that thing. Um, the revenues of the company overnight increased threefold just because of the migration of the model. And uh, we got that funding, that additional funding that we needed. That was like another uh, $10, 12000000 million. And, uh, and from then on, everything started being much more like a, a company more like a machine where you have you know your executive that runs sales your executive that runs marketing people from technology and i was like orchestrating the thing so we uh, moved from very scrappy startup garage mode even though we had like a 70 80 people into a normal company i brought in a couple of executives and uh yeah that that, that was definitely the moment and obviously the rest is history because how much capital have you guys raised today so since uh, so the, the Series A in total with the with the expansion was uh, $25 million. Uh, that was 15, 16. And uh, since then, we added another $550 million on, on top of that. We did uh, the, the Series B and the Series C in 2017. That was a magic year that we did 7x uh, revenue growth. In 2019, we did the Series D uh, that we got $230 million. And then last month, we announced the Series E. That was 255 at a $1.75 billion valuation. That's amazing. That's amazing. So so obviously the, the business model, as we were talking, it has a, you guys have been very good at listening, very good at adapting. So I guess for the people that are listening now, you know, what, what is Creditas today? How do you guys make money? Um, so Creditas moved from being a secure lending platform. Um, and uh, what that means is that we find customers that want a loan, produce a loan extremely complex through a technology platform because we use the collateral. So you need to make sure that you place the lien on the property properly. Uh, and then finally, we take that loan and we sell it to capital markets. We keep a tranche of that securitization that we call it. And that's the source of revenues for us. It's a, it's a margin on every single loan that we get. It's recurring revenues instead of being an upfront model. So we have, if you think about it, we have a customer acquisition cost that we invest in bringing a customer, and then we have a stream of cash flows that come from that customer every single month over a relatively long time frame. On average, our loans have seven years maturity, so we keep our relationship with the customer using the house, the car, or the salary as a collateral for those uh, six, seven years just for the first transaction. So we are profitable in the first transaction. Uh, and then what we uh, uh, the, the, the way that we expanded that business model uh, was last year when we decided hey, this is not enough, beyond lending, we need to penetrate into the user case, uh, what the customer wants to do with that money. 
uh, how can we help the customer in the usage of that of that money because it was like a relatively light a large ticket and um, so we started we created what we call consumer solutions and um, those goes uh, across three ecosystems your car your house and your salary and uh, we do things ranging from related to your car we upgrade your car so we buy the car from you sell you a new car and move the financing from the previous car to the new car and we manage all the process we have our own a, a reconditioning center uh, to serve those customers in the in the home ecosystem we do home renovation for our customers and obviously we finance that home reno renovation through our home equity product but we have our own architects and engineers that work together with the construction company in order to deliver the product to you end to end and then finally in the in the salary ecosystem we realize that yeah, the employees, they don't only want to have a salary. They want to make the most out of, those, of that salary. We partnered with Apple and we created an Apple for Life program in Latin America for the employees of our partner companies in which the iPhone is not paid by the employees, paid by the salary itself. So we discount the money from the salary. Sometimes you even get subsidized uh, uh, from your employer uh, and that improves the user experience, improve our economics because we are collateralized by the salary and finally it creates a better value proposition for the employer it's a great benefit for the employees and the, the last component of, of the model we decided to go international so we had been like a almost eight years only in brazil and last year we launched mexico super excited about the mexican market plenty of things to do and uh you know a population that really deserves something better that's amazing you know definitely incredible growth and and just to get a sense you know on the on the size of the operation and, and the scope, especially for the people listening, anything that you can share in terms of maybe like number of, of employees or anything else that is relevant? Yeah, uh, yeah. so so we are getting close to 2,000 employees. In in 20, in fact, in 2020, we only grew like by 25% the number of employees. We had COVID in the middle, so we slowed down the growth on the employee base. But we continue growing fast on the, on the revenue side. Yeah, we closed fiscal year with uh, 70 million dollars in revenues already with run rate of uh, close to 100 um, and uh, hoping to continue doubling every year for the next three years so hopefully we are here for the long run and uh, i'm i'm multi like a multi-billion building a multi-billion dollar company um, last year we were half the size and just three years ago we were we were like a, a one-tenth of the size that we have uh, that we have today that's fantastic so so one of the one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, imagine you know I take you on this time machine, Sergio, and and I bring you back to those days where you were in New York and you just met your wife, your now wife, and and at that point you know like you are in front of this problem and you're thinking about like maybe doing something about it. So if you had the opportunity of talking with that younger Sergio, with that younger self. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would tell that younger Sergio before launching a business and why knowing what you know now? Yeah. So the, uh, it's, it's a great question. And, and I think about that a lot uh, because obviously we made a lot of mistakes and uh, you always regret about those. You, you, you Sort of like you only remember the mistakes that you made. But, uh, but I, I think that the, uh, one of them was not talking uh, enough with potential investors. My business was a business that needed investors. There are businesses that you don't need, that you can be like a, you can be running the show and, and you don't consume capital. But if you work in financial services, 
chances are you will need like a bunch of money. Um, so I was thinking that I had to have the perfect pitch deck and everything nailed down before I was getting in front of the investors. And uh, so I was like, uh, you know, working it crazy, preparing the pitch deck, even before talking to the investor and then going into the room and then explaining all the things that I had learned. And, uh, and then the investor was, yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, investors, they, most of the times they don't want to tell you the bad news, which is I'm not going to invest in your company, period. Um, they, 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 they didn't like what I was doing at that point. Uh, this marketplace model, it didn't work and they knew it. They had seen like another 10 entrepreneurs before you explaining exactly the same. If I were back then, I would go to investors and I would ask them, what are you looking into? What are you interested in? Uh, in this specific space, right? So let's take financial services. What, what are you looking for? Uh, because they will tell you the things that actually they want to invest. So if you want to make sure that you minimize the chances of running out of money, talk to the main investors. Ask them what they are looking for. Uh, what are the ideas that they have realized that are relevant before you launch the company, before you even explain what you want to work on? And this is very simple, but I think it could have saved me probably like a couple of years of work if I had like just like talked plainly about that. Uh, now you have like programs of you know, entrepreneurial residence. Obviously, they are like more dilutive, but the beauty of them is that you know they help you in figuring out what these investors would invest in. You get to know them, and, and so on. I think that's uh, that's the first one. And, and the second one, and obviously this is very obvious, but I think that those of us that are like you know alpha personalities, we think that we know it all, that we come from you know amazing, great backgrounds, and uh, and being successful every single day in our lives, we think that we can we can make it just by ourselves. And, uh, you know, talent is so important. I'm, I'm a person that I'm not necessarily focused in, in people. That's not my area of expertise. It's not what I've been good at. I've always been good at sitting in a room or in front of like a whiteboard and then it's scratching things and, 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 and trying to figure out the solution of a problem. But uh, you realize, especially now with a couple of thousand people, that you really need to be like a people person and that talent really changes the world. And uh, it's not you, it's the people that are going to be helping you in doing that. And uh, if you are not, and in my case, I was not, it's someone that likes managing people, you better surround yourself of uh, executives that actually can do that. And that can take your vision and uh, move it to those individuals, create a culture that uh, remains and that helps you in building an amazing company. I love it. Very, very profound, Sergio. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You, you definitely guys can, can find us in creators.com. But uh, in my case, just go to Sergio at creators.com. Happy to talk to other founders. Uh, so this is part of my, today is my, is part of my role, interacting with other people. I learned so much. Uh, I'm still like a mentor in Endeavor. And uh, I learned so much from uh, younger founders. Um, and those concepts that I learned from them, those ideas that they bring me and they say, I want to listen to your opinion about this because now you have had like this experience over like almost like a decade. They don't realize that they are helping me so much just because I take those ideas and I reapply obviously in different formats uh, and across different industries. And that's what keep us awake and what keep us alert to really improve the business and, uh, and bring in more innovation. 
Absolutely. Well, Sergio, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much. And hopefully the audience uh, liked this discussion. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.